and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. I come to the service a little bit late this morning. Um, I had the privilege of spending a little bit of time at Hawkwood Baptist Church this morning. They are installing a new associate pastor and having a special service. And uh, because geographically we are close enough and the timing of our services allowed it, uh, I was able to go there and um, bless them and greet them on behalf of our congregation. And I mention that just to remind us, I guess, that... We are not a lone congregation. We're a part of a family. People who are in partnership together, they serve the kingdom in Hawkwood. We serve the kingdom here and in the places that we live. And uh, so I just wanted to remind us of that reality and to bring you their greetings as well from our sister congregation. This passage that we've just heard read for us um, is probably the most famous of all of Jesus' parables, maybe even the most famous passage in the New Testament. There is an international relief agency organization named for this passage, Samaritan's Purse. 
The phrase Good Samaritan is in common use, and you don't need any church or scripture background to know that a Good Samaritan is somebody who unexpectedly gives help when it is needed, usually to a stranger. Uh, Probably at least half of you could probably have told that story from memory before hearing it read, even today. But just as the phrase Good Samaritan is a familiar phrase, here's another familiar phrase. You can finish it for me. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. We are so familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan that we already know the moral of the story before we've even made it through the text. Right? We all know the point of the story, don't we? That we are to be like the Good Samaritan and care for people in need. Jesus says at the end of this passage, okay, now you go and do the same thing. It's a call to social justice. It's a reminder that compassion ministry is a vital part of the life and ministry of the Christian individual, of local congregations as a body, and it's a distinguishing mark of the Christian church worldwide. And that is all true. And in fact, in this parable, Jesus is elevating compassion for the needy as a kingdom of God value and as a requirement for God's people. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is that and then some. And if we stop at the go and do likewise, be good to the poor, if we stop there, then we miss the power of the text. Now, the point of the parable is to showcase love for one's neighbor, even if that neighbor is, like in this story, one's enemy. But Jesus' objective in telling the story is to make a related but very different point. Okay, now if that's confusing, let me say that again. The point of the parable is to showcase love for one's neighbor. But Jesus' objective in telling the story is to make a related but very different point. Let me put it another way. Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to showcase what it looks like to love one's neighbor. But he showcases what it looks like to love one's neighbor because there's something about loving one's neighbor that Jesus wants his listener to understand. Now we're all thoroughly confused. Maybe we'll get some clarity as we move through the text. Now, do you remember from the text that Jesus actually tells this story as a response to someone's attempt to deflect attention away from something else? And the parable itself is actually the second movement of the conversation. The conversation begins with a lawyer standing up to text, to test, not to text Jesus. That wasn't happening yet then. (laughs) To test Jesus. Okay, this is not a pinstripe suit lawyer who's involved in civil, civil law and litigation. This guy is a theologian. He is an expert in the law, in the scriptures. And so this lawyer stands up and asks Jesus a question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This guy is not an honest spiritual seeker. He's not looking to engage in some authentic dialogue. He's an expert in the law, and he's testing Jesus to see if Jesus will also uphold the law. Because if he can get Jesus to answer in any way that undermines the law or compromises the law or softens the law of God, then the lawyer can discredit 
Jesus. And the lawyer is on the offensive here. Only Jesus does uphold the law. Jesus doesn't answer the question, but he asks the question, well, what is written in the law? Well, how how do you read it? Okay, Jesus is a a perfectly orthodox Jew. He upholds, he affirms the law, the five books of Moses, and by extension, the whole Old Testament. He upholds it as God's word. And let me say, just as an aside, that it's somewhat fashionable to pit Jesus against the Old Testament and against the God of the Old Testament. And yet Jesus here affirms the Old Testament and that you know, many times in his ministry, it was the God of the Old Testament that Jesus said, he is my father. And we accept the Old Testament as God's word, not because there's archaeological evidence that proves that it's historically reliable. We accept the Old Testament because Jesus did, and we believe him and follow him. So however one, however one in, inherits eternal life, Jesus appeals to the scripture, to the law, as the authoritative word on that subject. And in fact, we see that Jesus actually takes the law far more seriously than the lawyer does. What is written in the law? Jesus says, you're the expert in the law. You tell me what one has to do to inherit eternal life. And the lawyer does what was pretty common uh, for religious leaders in his day. Instead of reading through the law, he summarizes it with these words. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was a standard kind of formal summary. Later, Jesus himself would summarize the law with the exact same formula. And a religious leader would affirm Jesus for that. And on that occasion later, Jesus would say that all of the law and all of the writings of the prophets hang on or are included in those two great commandments. It doesn't mean that those laws are greater or have more value than the other laws. It means that all of the other laws are included in those two. Paul would write later in Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So the answer to the lawyer's question is, if you want to inherit eternal life, then love God and love your neighbor, just like the law says. Now that is the right answer. But what an answer it is. The lawyer wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life. Um, The rich man, you might remember from our text last week in Luke chapter 18, asked the very same question. Teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? They wanted a religion that they could do. Okay, just give me the checklist and I'll do it and I can then inherit eternal life. But Jesus points to the law and says, if you want eternal life, then this is what is required. Love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. In other words, love God with 100% of your being, 100% of the time. That is what is due him as our creator and our Lord. Always honor him. Always live out the things that he values. Always reflect God's character. Never deviate a single degree from absolute devotion. And live that reality out in your relationships with people. Always show to your neighbor the same kind of love that you show to yourself. Compassion, fairness, looking after your needs, help whenever it is needed, etc. Just do that, 
Jesus says, and you will inherit eternal life. Now, what the lawyer should have done at this point is what we said last week that the rich young man should have done and said, I can't do that. I've never loved God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. I've never had that kind of unfailing devotion to God. I've never consistently cared for my neighbor with the same consistent attention that I care for myself. That's what he should have said. But instead, he asks another question. We read that he's doing it in order to justify himself, make excuses or find a loophole he says, okay, well, who then is my neighbor? It's interesting that the lawyer doesn't touch the command to love God. Maybe he knows he can't justify himself there. Maybe he feels good about his love for God because he feels love in his heart and he feels a strong desire to be righteous. But whatever the case, it's about his neighbor that he asks the question. Who exactly is my neighbor? What do you say to that, Jesus? Now, a couple things about that question. First, the lawyer isn't really asking, who is my neighbor? He's asking, who isn't my neighbor? So, because by asking, okay, now who exactly am I to love in this way? What he wants to know is, then who, who's outside of that? Who can I legitimately ignore? Who is my love to be limited to? And second thing about that question is that just like with the lawyer's original question, there was a right answer for the Jewish religious leaders. The book of Sirach, which is a Jewish rabbinical writing, says, and written before the New Testament time, says this, if you do a good deed, make sure to whom you are doing it. Then you will have credit for your kindness. A good turn done to a God-fearing man will be rewarded, if not by him, then by the Most High. No good comes to the persistent wrongdoer or to the man who never gives alms. Refuse him bread. Give him nothing at all. He will only use, you, he will only use your gifts to get the better of you, and you will suffer a double wrong in return for the favors you have done him. The Most High himself hates sinners and sends bad men what they deserve. Give to a good man, but never help a sinner. Keep your good works for the humble, not the insolent. In other words, the Jews' answer to this question, who is my neighbor, is, well, my friends, my family, people who I know to be good and upright people. That's who I love as my neighbor. That's who I'm supposed to serve and do good to. See, when you want a religion in which you can do something to inherit eternal life, when you want to behave your way into heaven by your good and upstanding moral life, then by necessity you are forced to put limits around the command of God in order to keep it manageable. Okay, lay it out for me. These are the boundaries, and I'll do that. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And the story, as you know, is something like this, that a traveler travels from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a familiar road, but it was one that was known to, have, uh, to be a dangerous road. It was a dark back alley. You know, you go there at your own risk. And if people are traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, they go in a large enough group so that they can be safe. But this man travels on his own and predictably falls into the hand of robbers. And they rob him and they strip him and they beat him 
and they dump him at the side of the road, leaving him for dead. A horrific event. So here's this man, unconscious, bleeding, dying. And then a priest and a Levite come by and they both ignore him. Okay, now, now this is not a poor man begging. This is not a guy at the side of the road with his hood up or with a flat tire. This man is bloodied, he's dying, his situation is absolutely desperate. If somebody does not help him, he dies. It's all over. So first the priest comes by, the, the pastor, the religious profession, professional, the guy who gets paid to serve God. And he comes by, and the text tells us that he sees the man. Okay, there's no doubt that he sees him. The need is right there in front of his face. And he crosses to the other side of the road and continues on his trip. Then the Levite comes, okay, the board member, the choir director, the praise leader, the Sunday school teacher comes by. The associate pastor comes by. And very same thing, comes to the place, sees the man, crosses to the other side of the road, and carries on his way. Um, I've read lots about this text and listened to sermons on this text over the years, and people are fond of of pointing out details of the text that, you know, the priest probably didn't want to make himself unclean, not knowing if the guy was dead, and so to protect his spiritual cleanness, he avoided the man, was doing the right thing, in a sense, by doing that. I don't know that all of that is the point. I think the point is that he saw the man and didn't do anything about it. For whatever reason, he didn't do anything about it. Then a third guy comes along, and Jesus' listeners are expecting probably a congregation member, a normal Jew, a, a lay person. Okay, that's a natural progression. Um, Jesus had a bit of a reputation, deservedly, for criticizing the religious establishment. So here's a perfect case in point. Here's a man in need. Priest doesn't help. Levi doesn't help. Who's going to help? Ordinary Joe is going to help. You're going to help. So that's what his listeners are expecting. Then Jesus says, then a Samaritan comes by and sees the man and has compassion on him and helps him. Now, we are so far removed from this text and that culture that we really miss what hearing that word, Samaritan, would have done to his audience. Everyone that was listening to Jesus tell this story, their jaw would have absolutely dropped to the ground. They hated Samaritans. They cursed Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were worse than second-class citizens. They were, they were pagans. They were racially inferior. inferior. There was a deep-seated, centuries-long hostility between Jews and Samaritans. No Jew would ever have made the Samaritan the hero. But the Samaritan comes along and sees his enemy on the ground. It's interesting that the Samaritan in the text has pity on him. Other translations has compassion on him. It, that it, it starts in the heart. There's an emotional response. He feels something for this man in need. And for Jesus, it's always about the heart first. But what the Samaritan does 
And, and here is, I think, what Jesus wants to draw our attention to in this text first. Not just the fact that it's a Samaritan, but to the level of care that the Samaritan gives. He doesn't pull out his cell phone and call 911. He, he goes to the man. He washes his wounds with, uh, with oil to clean them and then with wine to disinfect. And then he bandages the man's wounds. And he takes the man and sets him on his own donkey, which means he probably now is walking. And he leads the man down the road, don't know how far, to an inn. And instead of dropping the man off, he gets them a room and cares for the man overnight, takes care of him, pays for the man's, uh, for the expenses for the night, and then leaves money for the innkeeper and says, look, just keep him here. He's in no shape to travel. You take care of him. And here, I'll pay you money up front to do that. But I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm actually going to make a point of coming back here and checking in, and if, if we owe any more money than that, then I'll just, I'll pay it, just put it on my tab. Kind of a blank check to care for this guy. Now that's, that's pretty astonishing level of care to give. And so Jesus tells the story and finishes and asks the lawyer this pointed question, Okay, of these three, who was a neighbor to the man who was in need? Now, notice the shift from who is my neighbor to who are you a neighbor to? And the man says, well, obviously, can't even say the word Samaritan. He'd spit it if he could say it at all. So he just says, well, the man who had compassion, the man who, who took care of him. And Jesus said, now you go and you do the same thing. And so to love your neighbor means to give this level of extraordinary care to people just as you would want to be treated if you were in their situation. You want to inherit eternal life, Jesus says, then you go and you love like this. No matter what the need, no matter who needs it, you love like this. And the point that Jesus is trying to make the point that he really wants to drive home is not so much start caring for the poor and needy, which is usually how we read this. But his point is that to inherit eternal life requires a level of loving our neighbor that is infinitely beyond what we can do. The fact is that nobody loves like this. Nobody loves their neighbor in the way that Jesus is describing here. There might be flashes or occasions of extreme selflessness, but no one has ever lived consistently day to day like this Samaritan is demonstrating here. Nobody. Nobody has spent their whole life investing themselves fully in the care of the needs of people around this. And Jesus' point is not so much do this. His point is you can't do this. You want to inherit eternal life? You think there's something that you can do to get right with God, to inherit heaven and eternity with God? Man, to inherit that requires something so entirely out of reach. You know how what it takes to love like that. You can taste it. 
You can venture into that kind of love, and we are called to do that. Hear me. I'm not saying don't bother with loving your neighbor, with loving the poor. But the very best that we can do, even if it just kind of increases all the time, the very best that we can do falls so far short of God's perfect love demanded of his people. And our only hope to inherit eternal life, just like the wounded man's only hope on the side of the road, is to get help from somebody else who, based on our relationship with him, we should expect hostility. We should expect destruction and anger and hatred. And unless this person who really should feel angry and judgmental and wrathful towards us, unless this person has compassion and bandages and cleans us and cares for us to make us well, we cannot be saved. We just can't. And so the Samaritan is a picture of our own Savior, Jesus. We should, we should have considered Jesus an enemy. He should have considered us his enemy based on our history, relationship to him, and to his Father. And I think that the message of this text is far better than simply a call to action to love our neighbor. I think the message of this text is that there's nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life, and yet God in his grace has given it to us anyway. By giving his son to die for us, in a sense to be beaten for us and left on the side of the road to die in our place. As Jeff prayed, it doesn't have anything to do with what we do or can do. It has to do with who God is and what he has done. This Good Samaritan passage, I think, is a, is a passage of grace. It's a passage of grace. And if we read this text and simply leave the building rolling up our sleeves and say, you know what, we need to strengthen, we need to go to the mustard seed more often, which we do. We do need to do that. But if that's all we leave with, then we miss the incredible power of the salvation that is ours in Christ, and we miss the fact that the gospel is good news for us, and that we have been saved, and that in answer to our question, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He now says, nothing. Got it covered. I did it for you. Walk with me, and I'll carry you in. It's an incredible passage, an incredible truth. But there is something, practically, that we also do leave with. Because we are called to love our neighbors, and to care for the poor, and to see need, and to recognize it, and to address it. But we do that, when we do that, we are reflecting the very character of God himself. And in fact, our love for God will find expression, inevitably, in our care for people. We love as we have been loved. Uh, a number of people are talking here in the congregation these days about the fact that you know, we feel like Thornhill has turned a corner. And there's kind of a new, a new, a new phase, a, a renewed sense of joy and health and vitality in God-centeredness. And I think that's true. But if it's true, then that will bear fruit. And we'll know a couple years from now because we're 
We have such a heightened value of loving the people around us and caring for the needs around us. And if that value is increased, then we'll know that what we're feeling now about Jesus and this renewed faith is the real deal. Because love for God inevitably gets expressed in love for each other. And the truth is that love God and love your neighbor are two sides of the same commandment. They're not two different paths. If we love God, we will love our neighbor. But it'll be a natural response um, to his grace for us. As we have been loved, so we love. And we can move that direction and want to do that. But again, Jesus tells this story to highlight our need for grace, not to give us one more thing to do to earn the favor of God. And I want, I want you to know, and I want this to be our increased understanding and experience, but I want you to know this morning that if you pause and ask the question of Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Do I have to... Do I have to be religious? Do I have to do good? What, to what level do I keep the commandments? Jesus' answer would be, you know what? You fall far short of what you need to do, but I have made that up. I filled in the gap. I gave my life for you. And just by accepting that reality and living again with me as Lord, he would say, you have eternal life as a gift of grace through faith in Christ. It's, it's simple. It's simple. And it's wonderful. And it, it, it fosters joy and gratitude and life as a response to the grace of God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, in many ways find ourselves on the side of the road. And we're beaten by our own guilt, robbed and left for dead, bloodied by our religion, bloodied by our attempts to be good, bloodied by the, the anti-God culture we live in, bloodied by the evil one, and, and we are wounded. And Jesus, if not for you, we are lost. And we thank you that you have seen us and had compassion on us and bandaged us and restored us and given us life. Thank you, O oh God, for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you have done everything required for us to inherit eternal life. And I pray that Anyone even here this morning who does not know that reality, that you will speak that truth to them in a way that they understand. That you accept no one based on the good that we have done. You accept no one based on our righteousness, our morality. You accept us in Christ, and in Christ alone our hope is found. Thank you for that. We praise you for that. What a joy to be your children. What a joy to be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let's conclude our time of worship by singing hymn number 92. Just a reminder that in our care for people 